Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Sermapod, which is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am your guest host, Matt Liller. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Ksenia Mayarova, a highly accomplished immigration lawyer and founder of Mayarova Law in Orlando, Florida, to the Sermapod to discuss several very important issues regarding immigration in sports. Welcome, Ksenia. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to dive right in, and I think we all know at this point that there are absolutely incredible athletes all over the globe. And so what are some basic steps and considerations uh, of a foreign-born athlete who wants to come to the U.S. to live and train? Sure. So to some extent, that depends on the extent to which they want to remain in the U.S. So we have non-immigrant visas, which are temporary visas that allow them to be here for a certain period of time to complete a series of competitions and perhaps have training alongside that. And then we have the Extraordinary Ability Green Card, which we kind of have heard out there in the uh, real world called the Genius Green Card, the Einstein Green Card. This is a green card that also extends to persons who have extraordinary ability in sports. So a green card is obviously permanent residence and allows the athlete to remain permanently in the United States. But it's very difficult to get because it requires such a high level of achievement. I'm actually very interested in the extraordinary ability green card. Can you dive in a little bit more on what is necessary? You know, is it you know, world rankings or you've you've won certain competitions. How does an athlete uh, get designated uh, extraordinary? Sure. So the definition that we have in the regulations is one that says that the person has to demonstrate that they've risen to the very top of their field of endeavor. And we have some guideposts for how they can demonstrate that with some criteria that are listed in the regulations that feature things like a one-time achievement. So that might be an Olympic medal. If you have an Olympic medal, you're probably going to get there under the one-time achievement award. You can send a photo of yourself wearing the medal. Here's your green card. Here you go. It's not quite that simple, but, but it's going to be pretty straightforward. As far as somebody who doesn't have an Olympic medal, they can still get there. And the range of people who can get there kind of depends to some extent on their sport and how lucky they get with an immigration officer, because to some extent it depends on how well the immigration officer understands the field of endeavor, the sport that they're applying in. So you might have somebody who has world championship medals and who is ranked, let's say, in the top 10% in the world in their sport. That's going to be a person who has a really good chance at getting a green card, but that's not going to be the sort of the bottom cutoff line for getting the extraordinary ability green card. I just got one fairly recently for a woman who was ranked only in about the top 15% in the world in her event in track and field. Her only accomplishment internationally was a finals at the Commonwealth Games. So she didn't have any senior world championship medals, no senior continental medals to speak of. She was a multi-time national champion. So it really depends. Sometimes we have to massage it a little bit, present the sport, present the story, and um, convince the officer that this is a compelling case, despite the absence of maybe a very high achievement in the way of medals. 
So can you walk us through a little bit more on outside of the extraordinary uh, ability green card, as far as if an athlete wants, a foreign born athlete wants to come to the U.S. to train for, say, a season or something like that? What does that process look like on the immigration side? Sure. So there's no such thing as a uh, visa classification that allows you just to train. Um, there is a classification for internationally recognized athletes, the P1A, that allows people to come over to train and to compete. So technically, the training kind of happens as an incidental activity to the competition because the P1A is designated for individuals who are coming solely to compete in a level of competition that requires internationally recognized athletes. If that sounds circular, it's because it is. Um, so at one point when they were drafting the regulations, they basically put language in both the P classification, which we think of as our sort of entry level non-immigrant visa for individuals of extraordinary ability or, um, you know, who are distinguished in sports, let's say. And then there's the O1A, which has a higher achievement threshold. That's the one that's sort of the, uh, the visa that corresponds to transitions to the extraordinary ability green card. So for both of those, when the regulations were being drafted, the government put in language that said that in each of those scenarios, you have to prove in addition to proving the level of extraordinary ability or renown or achievement in the sport that you have to prove for that classification. You also have to prove that the activities for which you're coming to the United States require that level and that caliber of athlete. And when the American Immigration Lawyers Association commented on the proposed regulations, we caught this issue in the O1A context and we commented on it and we said, look, this isn't supported by the plain language of the statute. It's ultra virus. Get rid of it. And it was ultimately pulled from the O1, but not so from the P1A. So what we've got left here is this largely ultra virus requirement that kind of survived notice and comment that requires us to demonstrate that not only is the athlete internationally recognized, the level of performance in the United States is also internationally recognized, which presents some problems for people who participate in more niche sports, lower profile sports. When you're talking about somebody who's coming over to play major league baseball or somebody who's coming to play in the NBA, the NHL, that's not a problem to demonstrate that these are levels of competition that require a very high level of athlete to participate in them in order for those competitions to maintain their current reputation. That's a much harder sell when we're talking about something like parasailing or axe throwing or, you know, some of these other more niche sports. Um, and it's also a challenge when we talk about athletes who are still in college and their collegiate competition schedules and really trying to make the argument that those might meet that element that we discuss in the P1A that says that it has to be at an internationally recognized level of performance. And that actually segues into my next question almost perfectly, and, and that's how do current immigration laws affect foreign athletes, younger foreign athletes, uh, who want to attend college in the U.S.? So this is a great question. It's an issue that really uh, has come to the forefront in the last few years with the announcement of the NIL rules, right? So when the NIL rules were announced in 2021, I took a look and I said, oops, Houston, we've got a problem because international student athletes are typically attending school on a student visa, the same kind of visa that you would have if you were coming over to be a student just studying economics at a regular university in the U.S. and having nothing to do with sport. 
So the F-1 visa, which was designed for students to perform student-like activities, obviously did not contemplate the creation of the NIL ecosystem. And so the F-1 has very limited context in which you can work. There's an authorized employment authorization for sort of a postgraduate internship. You can do some internship type work while you're still in school. Both of those scenarios have to be related to the field of study. You also have on-campus employment, which actually has to be on-campus, and you have emergency kind of urgent economic need employment authorization, which is going to be very difficult to argue for an international student athlete who's being offered an NIL deal. The reason for that is because most likely if you're the caliber of athlete that's getting offered an NIL deal, you're sitting on a full scholarship, your housing, your food is taken care of. So it's very difficult to argue that you need this employment authorization to be able to work so that you can provide for your basic needs. That is fascinating. Can you just to, to, I guess to get this to a little bit more of a real world example down from kind of the, you know, the, the meta, uh, analysis or, or the meta look that a lot of us non-immigration uh, attorneys may have. Can you run us through a, a, perhaps a particular case that you've been involved in where, you know, you perhaps, you know, you've got a, a foreign athlete that, that wants to come to the U.S. Uh, and, you know, perhaps there are some sticking points along the way and, and you had to, you know, work with your client and maybe push back against the government a little bit, but ultimately got uh, the result that you were interested in for your client. Sure. So I think it's worth mentioning, we'll, we'll do two of these, right? One, I didn't get that much of a fight on, but I think it's worth mentioning because we were just talking about NIL, right? So this was the first known case of an NCAA student athlete getting an extraordinary ability green card for the purposes of pursuing NIL opportunities. And the case was Cameron Rogers. She's a Canadian hammer thrower who went to Cal Berkeley. I went, I did my law school there. She went there for undergrad. Um, and she has an amazing coach who I'd been in touch with over the years on other athletes. And he called me up and he said, I've got Cameron. She's amazing. We want to try to do this. Is it possible? And I said, yes, I think it is. And we were able to get it done. So at the time, now Cameron, currently, if you Google her, she's a world champion. She got gold at the world championships in Budapest earlier this year. She was a silver medalist at the Eugene World Athletics Championship in 2022. But at the time that we did this, she didn't have a World Athletics Championship medal. We did this largely based on her international ranking, coupled with the fact that she was the youngest ever hammer thrower in the Olympic finals. And so we were able to get that done. We filed for her right around this time, actually, in 2021. And uh, she got her green card early May of 2022. So a really fast timeline. Um, they didn't fight us on it at all. And they shouldn't have because Cameron's amazing. But, uh, but certainly that was a really interesting case. A case where I had to fight a little bit more was also a track and field case. I do a lot of track and field. That's how I got into this area and into this field. And so um, this was a case involving Matthew Hudson Smith, a uh, British sprinter. He's a 400 meter runner. And basically 
Matthew had a phenomenal case. Um, he was, you know, he was ranked very well in the world. He was ranked very well in the 400 at the time we filed it. He's now ranked much higher. I believe he's top five in the world right now. He had a phenomenal season afterwards. But at the time, he was maybe 30-something in the 400 and about 300-something overall in the men's overall ranking, the World Athletics uh International Federation, they do an individual event ranking and an overall men's or women's ranking. So basically, as I mentioned, there's some criteria that we have to demonstrate to demonstrate that a person is eligible for this extraordinary ability green card. But there's also a step two totality of the evidence analysis. And this is something that they started weaponizing more recently. So they would say, okay, there's a list of regulatory criteria. You have to meet at least three. We agree, you meet at least three of these. But based on the step two totality of the evidence analysis, which is far more subjective than the initial adjudication step, which is sort of an evidentiary question. On this second step, we have concluded that you are not good enough. You are simply not somebody who has risen to the top of his field of endeavor. And now they made that argument based on the fact that he was ranked, I believe it's 340 something um, in the world. Okay. So they come back to me and they say, no, we're not going to give this guy his green card. So I sued them in federal court and uh, we sued them alongside. We did a, a joint case. There was another guy that got denied a math genius from MIT who created some kind of um, theorem that completely changed the whole entire landscape of geometry. And um, he got denied on the same premise. So they gave him at least three criteria and then just said, nope, we, we still don't think you're good enough. So in Matt's case, um, we had to file this complaint in federal court. And I literally had to say the government does not appear to understand math because he is ranked 345th out of 12,000 ranked athletes, which puts him very well within the top 5%. And, you know, in my case, the fact that he had risen to the very top of his field of endeavor was mathematically demonstrable. So um, we did that. And... The um, the AUSA take, uh, took a look at it and was like, yeah, we're not going to go die on this hill. So they reopened and approved my guy. But um, but that's how that stuff works. Right. So sometimes we have to uh, be willing to go the extra mile for our clients and we have to kind of fight pretty unreasonable denials. Had another one that was really funny. Um, they denied a, a Russian judo coach. So this man had coached his athlete to uh, world championship gold. And the government said, well, we understand that you were, uh, you ch- uh, coached your athlete to world championship gold. However, your athlete only won gold in his own weight class. Therefore, he is not good enough. So I had to file a federal complaint to demonstrate that an athlete cannot simultaneously compete in multiple weight classes. This is the kind of stuff I do. (laughs) Now, obviously immigration laws are going to vary, you know, country to country throughout the world, but is there uh, kind of uh, looking at a wide net, do many other countries kind of have a similar extraordinary ability uh, route to citizenship kind of going the other way if a, if a U.S. athlete wants to immigrate to another country? 
So until very recently, I was not at all competent to answer that question, but it so happens that last month I spoke on a panel consisting of my colleagues from different countries around the world in, um, at the International Bar Association Conference. And we were on a panel called The Global Athlete, and they gave us a hypo with an athlete and all their achievements and said, okay, so does this work in your country? Does this work in your country? And does this work in yours? And as we were going through and analyzing that hypo from each of our respective uh, viewpoints, applying each of our respective jurisdictions laws uh, to that hypo, what was very clear very, very quickly was that we were the most restrictive. And I'll tell you who we had. We had the United Kingdom, Spain, Mexico, and, and Canada. And we were the most restrictive. And that's really sad because we are obviously a draw because of our professional leagues, because of our facilities, because of the NCAA feeder system into the professional leagues. We're a draw for athletes naturally. But our current legal system is so restrictive that it does not allow for easy transitions for these athletes to be able to come and to really be able to uh, obtain a visa classification that allows them to continue to stay here and compete throughout their career and maybe even beyond. And um, so, yeah, so that was a, a wake up call for me as well. Now, after we spent a lot of time talking about the extraordinary ability exemption. Um, so if an athlete, if a foreign born athlete wants to come to the U.S. Uh, to continue their their athletic career and perhaps they don't qualify for the extraordinary ability exemption, what's kind of the plan B for that athlete as far as coming to the U.S., whether it be on a temporary or a permanent basis? So one of the things that we always have to teach people about U.S. immigration law is that there may not be a way that there are certain classes of people that despite all their willingness and desire to comply with U.S. immigration law simply have no solution for their particular scenario. And we have, you know, these classifications like the P1A for internationally recognized athletes. We have the O1A, which is the analog to the Extraordinary Ability Green Card for Athletes of Extraordinary Ability. We have the Extraordinary Ability Green Card. But if you're just your run-of-the-mill kind of average athlete playing in like a third tier of a semi-pro league, there's probably not a good classification for you. And so um, how are these people here? Well, they might be here as derivative spouses of somebody else who has another visa classification, right? Um, it depends on if they're working, if they're earning money, and if the activities in which they're participating are considered work. So there's an analysis there as to, okay, you might be the spouse of, you know, an H-1B holder and you're here in H-4 status and, you know, maybe you don't have employment authorization because you don't meet the requirements for employment authorization. Does playing in this semi-pro league violate your H-4 status? And that's a very individualized and very fact-specific analysis that we have to undertake at each level. But, but to answer your question is, very, very, I would say the, the vast majority of athletes would find themselves not being qualified for anything at all. Um, you know, if you're just coming in for a quick competition where the only form of remuneration is prize money, your regular visitor visa will take care of that. But when you get into like more long term, I want to play with this American team 
and the American team is not at a high enough level of competition to support a P1A filing under the Compete Act, or you're not individually internationally recognized, you might not have an avenue to actually be here and and to have a specific visa status that allows you to do that. Big thanks to Ksenia Myrova of Myrova Law in Orlando, Florida. Uh, the website is kmimmigration.com. Ksenia, thank you so much for joining us today. And please come back and join us uh, with any breaking news or updates in sports and immigration law. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.